0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: The only way to not be co-opted or be corrupted as a protocol is to have it not be owned by anyone.
2: The rallying cry of the totalitarian is, he farted first. But if both systems have produced similar censorship outcomes, is there much of a difference? On today's episode 436 of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm joined by Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, and Andreas M. Antonopoulos for an in-depth conversation on the problem of censorship, or whatever you want to call that thing that's happening in various fashions around the world today. Today's episode is sponsored by eToro.com and The Internet of Money Volume Three. LTB is editorially independent and can be found at Coindesk.com, Let'sTalkBitcoin.com, and LTBShow.com. You know the drill, so let's jump right in. So for a long time, actually, I've been wanting to talk about this idea of narrative censorship. I think that the vast majority of people agree that reprehensible content, child pornography, stuff like that doesn't belong in places where people can be exposed to it. And I think that if you take that as a starting point, and then you say, all right, well, if we're building a system that protects us against that, what else should we be protecting ourselves and other people from? And the problem with this is that it's a really slippery slope. It's the definition of the slippery slope. And you quickly come to this problem where it's a question of reprehensible to whom? Who is the person or who is the individual or the organization or the government or wherever you want to put it, frankly, that decides what is okay versus what isn't okay?
3: And it's the power to make that decision and impose that control more so than the basis on which that decision is made, or whether the person you give that power has the ability to make that decision.
2: Exactly. So we find ourselves in a point in American history where the internet was for a very long time, a very free place. The internet was arguably a more free place than the rest of the places that you could interact with by nature of anonymity, by nature of its decentralization, and by nature of just kind of the way that the internet has historically worked. And what's happened over the last number of years is that it's kind of come into alignment with more things. In the 2016 election, one of the primary drivers of this, and I think one of the things that's really caused a lot of change on the internet today, is the idea that there was Russian interference in the 2016 election, which effectively led to the election of Donald Trump. People feel different ways about that. I think the deeper kind of down the rabbit hole you go to actually look at how that determination was made. Whether or not it actually had an impact on the election itself and on what people did, I think it's pretty easy to argue that it's a non-event.
3: Or at least that it's unknowable, because it's one thing to argue that it swayed the vote of the people who turned out, but it's another to argue that other people or more people or different people would have turned out had it
1: not been for that interference. The rallying cry of the totalitarian is said he farted first. I mean, every single war is a war of retaliation. Every single attack is a defensive measure. So, you know, the moment totalitarians wanted to censor everyone, they needed to blame somebody else because they're reactionary. They're not the one who started it. I mean, one of my favorite things to point to is like back in 2012, 2013, Reddit put out statistics for the most active sites in the world for Reddit users. And number four on that list was an island off the coast of Florida that had more active users than people who lived on the island. And it just so happened to have a naval research lab on it that specialized in social media research that publishes papers on how to manipulate social media influence graphs. Like, none of that is conspiracy theory. It's all 100% true. They do fantastic research. So the thought that the narrative is controlled and because of any sort of, you know, he farted, so now you got to just step into my Dutch oven. (laughs) Like it's nonsensical. I mean, the world that we're in today is so rapidly more controlled. I mean, look, those doctors that were talking about medical evidence got censored off YouTube for being deemed hurtful because YouTube said they weren't in alignment with the WHO. Today, 24 hours later, the WHO just acknowledged that they are now stating that you should follow Sweden's guidance on not having a lockdown. So now YouTube is going from censoring a statement because it was against the WHO that now the WHO 24 hours later then acknowledges. So who are they censoring it from? And like, how do you unpack this manipulation? The only way to win is not to play.
2: Right. So this is the problem that the world faces, basically, is that once you go down this path of trying to protect people from information that may be harmful to them, and therefore determining what information may be harmful to them, you're exposing the entire world in large part to the opinions of people who can be and often are wrong.
3: It's even more subtle than that, I think, which is that. A lot of this is done in reaction to harms that are obvious, common sense, easily measurable, and which emotionally or intellectually really trigger people. For example, as always, it's child pornography, it's terrorism propaganda, it's manipulation of elections, etc. What you don't see is the much more subtle, much more insidious, but potentially much more damaging. So when you're censoring information about disagreements or debates that are very much rational and real debates about the case fatality rate of COVID during the pandemic, which are informing decisions that are impacting not only millions of people going unemployed in the economy, but also potentially millions of people dying from COVID, you know, none of that is obvious. The silencing of that one voice that is contrarian the damage it does is not obvious. It's not instant. It's very much delayed, but it could be magnitudes larger. And that's the problem, right? The squeaky wheel of child pornography gets the attention. The much more insidious problem of either silencing certain voices or giving completely free pass to other voices. Because censorship has the other side too, which is At the same time that you have censorship happening, you also have propaganda happening. And propaganda is reverse censorship, if you like. It's the amplification of voices with a specific agenda. For example, the fact that Hollywood and the Pentagon have a very, very cozy relationship where Hollywood gets to use aircraft carriers as props as long as they don't say anything negative about our glorious patriotic armed forces.
0: Right, and the military has to literally read the script and approve it for them to loan their equipment to the movie makers.
3: Right, and that's a much more subtle form of censorship and a much more strong form of propaganda. It's the kind of thing that results, for example, in every action movie and every heroic entourage basically replicating a five-man special ops squad. You know, even Harry Potter, in some ways, has turned into a SWAT team. Harry Swatter. Harry (laughs) Swatter. It appears in every single TV show and every single movie, right? And so these forms of propaganda go hand in hand with the censorship. You can't only discuss one side.
0: I'd like to explore something that maybe might sound like playing devil's advocate a little bit. I'm just exploring it. Like, obviously, I don't agree with censorship, but I want to just explore this because, okay, one thing, these are private platforms, right? Like YouTube taking down COVID videos that they deem misinformation, Facebook curating what they have deemed to be fact checked, Twitter doing something similar. You know, you could say that these are all like private companies who are within their rights to have community policies and guidelines that are like standards for what they want their platform to be. Because if they have a completely unmoderated platform with no moderation that goes on at all and no mechanisms to remove content that degrades the quality of the platform, they're going to lose their customers.
1: That would almost sound like a platform. You have to choose if you're a publisher or a platform. Right. And because politicians are idiots, they don't understand that AT&T runs a platform. It's a telephone. They don't listen to your phone calls, use text recognition, and then turn off your conference call the moment you said the word COVID-19, like they do on YouTube. (laughs) Like, you have the right to use a telephone. It's a platform. The internet is a platform. The moment they start editorially censoring, they're a publisher. And what we have now is publishers that are pretending that they're platforms to criminally indemnify themselves from the liabilities of being a publisher using the language that is a lie because people don't feel like unpacking it or are paid to look the other way.
3: Right. It's the common carrier doctrine.
1: Does AT&T listen to your conference calls and then throw ads against your phone calls in real time? And then because your conference call had a term that they didn't like, they can't throw ads against your phone call. So now they need to editorially turn off your call. No, because they're a platform. They're not a publisher.
0: They would probably love to have that technology, though, that would send you ads in real time. No, they
1: couldn't, though, because what criminally indemnifies them from anything occurring on the phones is the fact that they are a carrier. They aren't a publisher. And because their technology is 100 years old, these 70 year olds in Congress that refuse to die or leave office are able to understand it.
0: Yeah, but now with FOSTA and SESTA, the governments have been passing laws that make the Internet a publisher exactly that force them into the role of publisher and not platform because they're forcing them to moderate the content and making them liable for what people post on their platform
1: so what happens is two things one is crony capitalism will always co-opt government that's what it does and the other is that the only way to win is not to play so that's why tcpip is awesome that's why bitcoin is awesome that's because the only way to not be co-opted or be corrupted as a protocol is to have it not be owned by anyone The only way to play that game and win is to be a Bitcoin, is to be, I mean, even Steam, it's at least slightly better than Facebook, at least until, you know, it got hostily taken over. And even now it's still slightly better. And so it seems to be it's impossible to be a platform if you're not a protocol. And a protocol means a protocol in this sense. A decentralized protocol seems to be the only way to be able to be a protocol these
0: days. There's so much information out there on the internet. And most people, they go to school critical thinking and like deciding what's true and what's not is not exactly a skill that's like taught to us really. And it's really easy to just not want to do all the work of like wading through all this information, figuring out what's true and what's not. Most people tend to just trust whatever they believed previously and sources that kind of confirm their existing beliefs. Do you guys think that's a problem? Like, I don't know about you, but I feel overwhelmed by information sometimes on the internet.
3: Yes, it absolutely is a problem. But are the solutions that are being proposed, which is to endorse and imbide with the power to control, filter, editorialize, censor, and propagandize a very narrow group, either of corporate interests, government interests, or the fascist collaboration of the two, the solution that we need to solve this problem? And what kind of side effects does that solution have? And that solution is far, far worse. It's one thing to say there are idiots out there who have not developed critical thinking and are easily swayed. And we need to fix this. And a whole other thing to say, and that's exactly why only the landed gentry should vote. You know,
0: I think there are a lot of people at these tech companies who genuinely think that, though, and they feel that they're doing the right thing by helping people out by like kind of screening the information for them. Giving them the correct, proper perspective.
3: Yes, of course. Benevolent fascism is still fascism.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: I also have an issue with the framing of the question in and of itself, which is that public school was never meant to teach you critical thinking. (laughs) Like, one of my favorite books is Weapons of Mass Instruction by a former school teacher. And if you actually read the congressional testimony for when they were proposing public school systems, and I'm going off the top of my head to paraphrase, but they said something to the effect of, We don't need more philosophers. We don't need more doctors. We need more factory men and factory women. And we need more people who can do that. And so it's like the public school system was never meant to be a way for the average people to be able to form their own opinion.
3: And the response to all of that is not accidental. Noam Chomsky told us about this decades ago with Manufacturing Consent. It's a really, really important book to read. And it's never been more true than it is today. The power to control, censor, frame, set up the base assumption, create the foundations of belief, and nail those down with all of the mechanisms of advertising and privileged access to sources and all of the other things that operate in the modern system of publishing, not platforms, as Jonathan pointed out, that is how consent is manufactured in democracies. It is a form of dictatorship of the mind. That is far more effective than a dictatorship of violence. And it is by necessity the form that supposedly democratic, supposedly free states will employ because the alternative isn't palatable to the populace, whereas it can easily be fooled into fully supporting this mechanism of propaganda and
1: censorship. I mean, this podcast itself is a function of the censorship. I mean, the fact that we're not on social media, we're not on YouTube. Means that we've been entirely independent and isolated from the fact that we can say the words COVID 19 and be entirely unaffected by it. If you watch any video on YouTube, they literally need to say that which we can't say or the thing that we're not allowed to talk about as the statement instead of COVID 19. Because the moment they say that, they're deranked, they're isolated, they're not recommended, and they can't even be propagated out to their listeners. It's insane the amount of totalitarianism that's occurring right now in speech.
2: So all of this conversation came out of this article that we were passing around this morning, which is on The Atlantic. It's called Internet Speech Will Never Go Back to Normal. In the debate over freedom versus control of the global network, China was largely correct and the U.S. was wrong by Jack Goldsmith and Andrew Keane Woods. It's a long article. It is worth reading just to kind of see the perspectives on either side. But the important takeaway from it is basically that China has a de facto surveillance censorship apparatus and it's operated at the government level. The United States does not do that because we have a constitution which, in theory, protects us from the federal government doing certain things to us, of which, you know, unreasonable search and seizures are kind of primary in there. And so that has prevented them from, in theory, creating these systems. But in practice, what's happened is that the platforms like Facebook, like Twitter, they actually have created these systems in a way that the government can use. And we learned from Edward Snowden's revelations a number of years ago. That in practice, the government is vacuuming up all of this information from all of these different platforms. So, the point being made by this article is basically that at least China isn't commercializing that data as well as doing the government surveillance and censorship side. Whereas in the United States, we get the worst of both worlds where private companies are technically the ones collecting it and they use it to make
1: money. What? China doesn't commercialize surveillance? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) bullshit. Has he heard of Jack Ma? Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Listen, he's a Harvard law professor, which means he probably worked at McKinsey, which means we know what side of the butter his toast is on. (laughs) Wow.
2: (sighs) But I mean, that's the basic thinking is that both systems have produced the same outcome. Perhaps one is further advanced than the other is. But the reality of the surveillance and the reality of the censorship is functionally the same in both of these systems, although one should, in theory, be very, very different.
3: What a load of bullshit! Not even close in terms of order of magnitude. There's simply no comparison. On the one hand, we're talking about a system of totalitarian surveillance that not only has the entire population in a virtual prison camp right now in China in many ways, but also one that successfully managed to suppress the information about the virus that was critical in stopping the pandemic around the world. Has resulted in the deaths of anywhere between forty and hundred and fifty thousand people, and then pretended it was only four thousand, which is put to lie quite easily just by the sulfur dioxide emissions of their crematoria running twenty-four hours a day in places like Wuhan, and is the same system that silenced the doctors and silenced all of the other information for months. Like, there's no comparison right now we're talking about in the U.S. where our idiot president is doing his utmost to keep the media under control and running nonstop propaganda about fake news and lying nonstop and is failing to do so, is failing to control these platforms, is failing to minimize the number of deaths, is failing to minimize the extent of the pandemic, quite unlike the Chinese government. Sure, we're not free. Sure, we have propaganda. Sure, we have censorship. But equating it to China's system is the most giant load of bullshit, false equivalents I've ever heard.
0: Let's Talk Bitcoin would like to thank our sponsor, eToro. What is eToro? It's an established U.S.-regulated trading platform trusted by millions of worldwide users with over a trillion dollars of trading volume on the platform per year. It lets you access the world's most popular crypto assets. And if you're not ready to start trading yet, you can even try it out in their virtual trading mode with $100,000 in test funds available as soon as you open your account. It's easy to get started in minutes with automatic account verification and 24-hour weekday support and a fast ticket response time. eToro gives you powerful trading tools made easy. Get started today by creating your account at etoro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O dot com. Please be aware that cryptocurrencies are highly volatile and trading them carries risks. What if money could be created without an authority? Are corporate coins the first step towards techno-neo-feudalism? Is the real darknet run by state intelligence agencies? Bitcoin and open blockchains educator, Andreas M. Antonopoulos, answers these questions and more in his latest book, The Internet of Money, Volume 3, now available on Amazon. Following the worldwide success of Volumes 1 and 2, this third installment contains 12 of Andreas' most inspiring and thought-provoking talks, available in paperback and on Kindle Unlimited. Order The Internet of Money, Volume 3 on Amazon today. So
2: Bitcoin is something that is permissionless, is neutral, and that allows anyone to put anything into the blockchain, effectively if you can afford the cost of putting it there. In the early days, we saw, you know, Luke Dash Jr. putting essentially biblical verses into the blockchain and codifying it there in a way that some people really disagreed with, but nobody could stop him. Later on, we would see people build technologies on top of Bitcoin, effectively embedding data into it that allowed people to create new types of tokens that used Bitcoin in a way that many of the Bitcoin developers at the time fundamentally disagreed with. And yet they couldn't particularly stop it. They could make it harder by changing the rules in the network, but that was a network-wide change, not a decision to, to censor you know, that one guy's token over there that he created and they didn't like. When we've looked at projects like storage or things that attempt to do decentralized networks of storage, they run into this problem, which is that If you have a protocol that doesn't have the means to censor content that everyone agrees is reprehensible, then you're probably not going to get anywhere with it because that's all that anybody is going to talk about is how your platform has become a host to all of this reprehensible content. But on the other side of it, if you do put in the sort of means to do these censorship type of actions, then you're creating the preconditions for the censorship functions to be used in ways that are wholly inappropriate and inconsistent with the vision of the platform as a whole. So what we're talking about in this article is two approaches to the same problem, right? One government only, one government private partnerships. Both of them lead to what I think we all agree are very bad results. Perhaps they have a
1: noble aim at the beginning, but the effect is very, very bad. Well, there are two fundamental differences in that, which is that a platform puts data out, but search is editorialism. So like every single person has a phone number. You're not publishing a criminal activity just by the sake of having a phone number. But if you got the white pages or the yellow pages and yellow pages said, buy cocaine here and had a phone number, (laughs) like that would be them breaking the law.
3: Jonathan, 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 I'm sorry. You need to explain terms like yellow pages to our listeners who are (laughs) under 50 years old.
1: (laughs) So... Every human has a phone number, and it was impossible to actually be able to do things before the world invented Google. So before Google, there was this book that would just magically show up in front of your door once a year that was yellow. (laughs) And it was basically a physical search engine for you to look up (laughs) things that you wanted to buy on Amazon before Amazon existed (laughs) using this thing called a phone. Thank you.
0: It was also very useful for other things, like if you couldn't reach the top of the refrigerator, you could stand on it. (laughs) And there was also a white version for
1: businesses. It made phenomenal plaster and paper mache
0: It also would say people's addresses sometimes, which was a little bit bad for people who wanted to avoid stalkers. I found the online modem dial-in number
3: for the National Bank of Greece in the phone book when I was 15, (laughs) and I called it.
1: with my motive. <laughs> my point is that that's not a problem. And that's an entirely different form of censorship. Like in the same way that we have the word of privacy and anonymity, when it comes to censorship, like the amount of evil that's exists in the world, we're sort of like the Inuit, where they have 30 words for rain. like we need 30 words for censorship, because <laughs> they're entirely different forms. That's a really good
3: point, Jonathan. And we talked about that before the difference between negative censorship, positive censorship, private censorship, public censorship, you know, a lot of the argument around whether private corporations are actually doing censorship when they're applying their own policies to a platform versus the government. And it's a very nuanced argument. It's not simplistic. You can't just simply say it's not censorship when private companies do it. But at the same time, how private are these companies? How much freedom do they have? How much monopoly power do they have? And how much of that monopoly power is very carefully supported by the governments, right? and how much of that is a very, very dirty quid pro quo. So the word censorship in itself is primarily a 19th and 20th century political construct that no longer applies the world we live in. It is antiquated in its expressivity.
1: So what's the new word? That's a very good question. The statement is, what are the new words? The
3: words, yes, indeed. And these words are about the application of control on expression and thought. It's all about control at the end of the day. And the problem with censorship is not the content. It's the person in which the control is vested. Is this just the natural sort of growth that's come out of the increasing
2: partisanship and the increasing polarization where it used to be that conversation, you know, like that there were some things that were not acceptable to talk about, but the majority of things you could actually have a
1: conversation about. I disagree. I think the only thing that's changed is that people now have broader access to the ability to communicate. So the internet wasn't restrictive, not because it was freer 30 years ago, but it was because no one was using it. In the past five or six years, so much of humanity has now become publishers to be able to communicate, to be able to have their own printing press, that now it's become unacceptable. And so the gatekeepers of 30 years ago or 20 years ago, where you had to send a letter to the newspaper and hope in the op-ed column they included a snippet about what you said as the only way that you could get something that you thought out to the public is being recreated now. It's become more totalitarian. It's that there was this moment where people had access to an ability to express that they never had before and were returning to the status quo. Well, I would argue that
3: to a great extent we still have that. The difference is that previously it was a factor of control and gatekeeping, whereas now it's a factor of amplification and reach. Meaning that when there was one or two newspapers and you wrote a letter to the editor and they decided not to publish it, that's gatekeeping, sure. When you have the internet and you can publish as much as you want, the problem is nobody's going to hear it because the platforms that take specific messages and amplify them so that they have reach are being controlled, or maybe the algorithms that extend access and amplification to some types of content. Even more insidious than removing content from YouTube is the algorithm that promotes content and amplifies it far beyond the reach of the original speaker, and I think that's an even more insidious problem. So the problem has changed dramatically. It's not just a matter of scale.
2: The world used to be made up of many, many, many very small communities, right? And then communities within those communities, and they were largely insular. It's not that there wasn't outreach between them, but you know, if you lived in a town, you were part of that town and you interacted with people who were in that town. And maybe you sent letters to people who were elsewhere, you had long distance phone calls that cost a lot of money, and maybe you traveled, but ultimately, geography mattered. And now geography doesn't matter. Now it doesn't matter where I live. I can do what I want. Most of us, frankly, travel or have traveled extensively while still doing this show. Or we used to anyway. Or at least we used to, yeah. (laughs) And so the ability of us to be in our own little bubbles that was geography bound has changed. And now the bubbles are more built around ideology or what do I believe. Because geography doesn't matter anymore. So, I mean, in an environment like that, it seems like it becomes not only more important, but more possible to control what's being said, since anything that's said anywhere can go to anyone, regardless of geography. So, the ability for a local newspaper to monopolize the conversation in that local area, well, that's gone entirely. And we've seen that in the demise of many of these types of business models in general. You know, it's still happening, but we're clearly at the end of that trend. So, is this the move from sort of the decentralized geography? to the more centralized venue of the internet and sort of the necessary attempts to control the conversation at this large scale.
3: But at the same time, I think these attempts will fail regardless of which way it's moving. I don't think the the censorship is very effective. If it was, then niche ideas wouldn't propagate so easily, but niche ideas are propagating much, much faster. I mean, look at the whole 5G coronavirus thing. The idea that 5G radiation is to blame that's a niche idea. And presumably, if censorship and control of the narrative was effective, that idea would not be able to propagate. But instead, it does propagate and it propagates rather effectively.
0: Yeah, I've seen a lot of people reposting videos that they claim have been like sort of taken down from various platforms. But, you know, they pop up quite often, actually, for videos that are supposedly being censored. And they get the Streisand effect, right? More people watch those two ER
3: doctors after they were censored than before. Reach is much more important than access.
1: My only critique there is that there's a massive survivor bias to that. So I'm not saying I agree with the 5G statement, but I will say that you're saying, look, see, we can see that, ergo, it's not a problem. And it's like, well, maybe it would have had 40 or 50 times more of the reach had they not been actively censoring it. Yes quite possible. And so it's hard to understand, you know, survivor bias in that regard, but I would say that there was that Harvard researcher who spoke before Congress and published multiple times the influence that Google's PageRank has on the congressional level for candidates to be able to win their primary and then be able to win in the general. And he said that it was the single greatest influencing factor of any other factor that he could measure to the point where it needed to be regulated.
3: But again I think that to a great degree is an artifact of a generational divide in the ability to apply not just critical thinking but more importantly social media management skills that is completely absent in the older generation and because the older generation is the one that votes that effect is amplified I think that the younger generation that has much better skills at managing information without the assistance of authoritative brands is behaving very, very differently than the older generation that needs an authoritative brand to decide if something is fake news or real news or serious journalism
1: or yellow journalism. I'll say this, which is that last month or whatever, a couple of weeks before the lockdown came into play, I was treated as being an overreactionary, insane person in the same light as a person saying 5G caused this. For saying, hey, if you don't want to get this, you should wear a face covering. You should wear a mask. Yes. Masks work. And because of the narrative control and the outright lies of politicians, the normie couldn't even determine the difference between the statement, hey, the CDC's own protection policy says you should wear a mask and goggles from, oh, 5G caused coronavirus. And so the thing about normies is that they have an IQ of 100, right? Like, the average person just lives their average life. And so when you manipulate the wisdom of the crowds, you're manipulating the wisdom of society. Well,
3: I'd like to add one more dimension to this, which is so far we've talked about two different aspects of censorship and two different actors of censorship. We've talked about censorship by private forces for profit and by government for state control, and the coalition of the two. We've also talked about censorship in terms of controlling access to the publishing of information versus controlling what is amplified and how much reach it has. The third one we haven't really talked about is the implementation of severe consequences for speech, which is another huge differentiator between what's happening in China and what's happening in the US. Largely speaking, the censorship we have here is much more subtle. We've talked about manufacturing consent and amplifying reach, et cetera, et cetera. The one thing you don't see is people being disappeared and thrown in jail for saying back in January that this was a human to human transmission of a respiratory virus that came out of a wet market or whatever. Those people got disappeared. They got disappeared in China. They also got disappeared in Hong Kong. And there are very, very, very harsh penalties for speaking that are applied after the fact. That is much harder to do in the United States and much more rare, with the few exceptions being so obvious that they're very broadly discussed. Julian Assange, Chelsea Manning, and reality winner being perfect examples of people who have been punished. Usually, that only applies when you're speaking directly about national security-related stuff where the state has been involved in war crimes and is trying to cover them up. Other than that, for the most part, we don't see consequences after the fact for speech. And that's a very, very important third dimension of censorship, the chilling
1: effect. We don't see government censorship for speech, but you will lose your job. You will be demonetized. You will have your income affected. And that sometimes, because it's extra legal, has an even greater conformity factor to it.
3: Again, it's the difference between state punishment versus private company consequences that we see in the U.S.
2: And ostracism, yeah.
3: Yes, we have cancel culture. We have ostracism. We have public disapproval and all of those things. And in some cases, we have action by private companies to suppress speech after the fact. Again, it's different. I would like to ask if any of our listeners know of any good sources that we can use to expand our vocabulary of discussing censorship and control along all of these various axes that we've discussed today, so we can have a more nuanced understanding of what exactly we're referring to when we say censorship or which words we should be using instead for all of these subtle variants that are just as insidious, just as damaging to public discourse, but do not easily fall under the very traditional, heavy-handed, Orwellian type of mind control that we've seen documented so well in the 20th century.
1: A couple thousand years ago, I think it was Plato made like six different words for love. We need another brilliant Greek out there to come up with six different words for <laughs> censorship. Oh,
3: yeah, I'm sure. It's actually a lot easier to do in Greek or German where you can have the kind of onomatopoeia, which is the creation of names for things by compounding words.
0: No, that's not onomatopoeia. Sorry. Sorry onomatopoeia is a word for a sound. Oh, you're so right. But I don't know what you call the smooshing words together, stringing them together.
3: I f***ed up my Greek. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. But you were absolutely right. Yeah, that was a brain fart. If you light your brain farts on fire, is that flaring? (laughs)
2: All right. And that's a wrap. Thank you very much for listening. You can find new episodes every Sunday on Coindesk.com, Let's Talk Bitcoin.com. And of course, the show's dedicated feed at ltbshow.com. Today's episode featured Andreas Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine, with editing by Jonas and music by Jared Rubens and Gertie Beats. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at adam at ltbshow.com. We'll see you next week.